A significant new fossil discovery in the Southwest could deepen our understanding of ancient mammal-like reptiles that lived among some of the earliest dinosaurs. A team of paleontologists shares what they found at Glen Canyon National Recreation Area, including how they stumbled on this unprecedented trove of prehistoric remains and what it could mean for science. I'm Jennifer Eric, and this is The Secret Lives of Parks. Imagine you're camping at a national park on a blustery day in early spring. You have a modest tent set up on a scenic ridge beside a lake in a remote area of the desert southwest. You wake up on a chilly morning with the urge to go to the bathroom, and you take a short, brisk hike to the porta potty. And then you come across one of the most important discoveries of your life. On my way back, I could see this about foot by foot square rock with all of these unusual brown stains on it, something you don't normally see in these kinds of sediments. So I walked over and looked, and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. That's Andrew R.C. Milner. And to be fair, he wasn't on just any camping trip. He's the site paleontologist and curator at the St. George Dinosaur Discovery Site in St. George, Utah. And he was on a special expedition to Glen Canyon National Recreation Area in the hopes of finding fossils. Though this wasn't how he expected to find them. The slab was covered in bone impressions, limb bones, ribs, vertebrae. I got down on my knees, looked at it super close. I couldn't believe it. I, I walked, walked away. I walked back to my tent and grabbed my hand lens because I was in disbelief. And I came back and looked at it with a hand lens and confirmed, in fact, that it's bone. And uh, that's when I started jumping around and yelling and screaming to the rest of our crew. Milner was camped next to Lake Powell, one of the country's largest reservoirs. The lake is part of Glen Canyon National Recreation Area and sits on the Arizona-Utah border on land adjacent to the Navajo Nation. In March of this year, severe drought had forced the water level to a historic low, and a section of the lake bed was exposed for the first time in about 60 years. The initial bone impressions Milner saw were embedded in a geologic formation known as the Navajo sandstone, thick layers of rock from a desert environment called a sand sea that swept across what is now the American Southwest nearly 200 million years ago. Scientists have found prehistoric animal tracks in this area, but very few bones. I've been a fossil collector since the age of six, and... I think this find on Lake Powell is probably one of the biggest, most significant in terms of uh, vertebrate body fossils that I've ever made. It was a great way to start fieldwork. The specimens Milner and his team found were of an extinct mammal-like reptile known as a tritylodont, or tritylodontid. These small, curious animals were a kind of precursor to mammals, and lived about 190 million years ago alongside early dinosaurs in the late Triassic and early Jurassic periods. A find like this adds to our understanding of the Navajo environment. We know a lot about it based on the footprints, but 
skeletal remains are so rare. Basically, all known sites you can count on both hands. And this is by far the richest one ever found in the Navajo sandstone. But at this point, the crew only had the slightest hint of what they'd discovered. And to learn more, they needed to act fast. Before Milner stumbled on his initial find, before he had even pitched his tent the day before, the waters at Lake Powell were already rising again. The scientists found themselves in a high-speed chase, relatively speaking, to capture the past. This was going to be a race against time because everybody was telling us that the water levels in the next 30 to 60 days were probably going to resubmerge the site. That's Vincent Santusi, senior paleontologist and paleontology program coordinator for the National Park Service. Some listeners may remember Santusi from episode four of the podcast when we learned about a cave of ancient bat fossils at the Grand Canyon that had been previously untouched by humans. He told us then, There are new discoveries made every year all across the planet. Most of what is to be discovered is still out there. It's still laying beneath the ground or exposed at the surface. The findings at Glen Canyon would soon bear out this wisdom. But first, the crew had to navigate a significant speed bump in their race against time. They needed a Park Service permit. Something that doesn't normally happen in the federal government is that everybody got on board and worked out a development of a permit and getting it approved and working out the logistics of getting another boat out there within a very quick time frame in order for that team to get out there and do an emergency rescue and recovery of what's turning out to be a really important fossil discovery in North America. That very quick process amounted to about 35 days, which in Park Service terms is whiplash-inducing speed, and exactly what the crew needed. The timing was perfect because the team was able to get out there. They were able to remove some incredible blocks that were not exposed to the elements. They were actually pristine, and they had better preservation of bone and articulated skeletons compared to things that were weathering at the surface. An articulated skeleton is an intact set of bones and joints, which is more informative and harder to find than single bones or bone pieces. This alone was remarkable for such a rare species. But perhaps even more astonishing was the presence of tracks in close proximity to the bones. We learn in Paleontology 101 that where you find footprints are not in the same layers of rock where you find bone and shells and teeth and and other remains. They are two different environments of preservation, but here the footprints are being found in the layers below the bone bed. They're found in the layers above the bone bed. And it's like, oh my goodness, what a smoking gun of, of evidence being able to perhaps correlate a track maker with an actual footprint. Scientists had found numerous sets of footprints in this part of the desert that they suspected belonged to this kind of reptile. But they had never been able to definitively link the tracks to a particular animal. This new discovery could provide that elusive match. This is significant because bones and tracks give scientists different information about how an animal lived and behaved. The enamel on a tooth, for example, can indicate whether a species was a vegetarian or a carnivore. 
The pattern of an animal's toes and its footprints can give us clues to how it walked. Tracks provide information that you can't necessarily find in the bone, and that is behavior. And so whether they were solitary, there's one track site, or whether they're colonial and they lived in family groups, you know, where you can compare adults with subadults and juveniles as part of a family. Here, we now are able to take all of these footprints and all the evidence and data about the behavior of these animals and compare it to these skeletons that are preserved of multiple individuals. We've got quite a story to tell. That story continued to deepen during the crew's second trip to the site a month later, after they received the permit for their emergency fossil rescue mission. Here again is Andrew Milner, describing a moment when he was digging into the sandstone on his second trip to Glen Canyon with his colleague, Dr. Adam Marsh, who we'll hear from later in the episode. I took a turn with an eight-pound sledge, pounding away on this thick sandstone carbonate. And then Adam took a turn, and then I took another turn, and this chunk of rock popped off, flipped upside down, and there was an articulated skeleton with the skull, forelimb, the backbone, and the ribs, everything in place. I actually fell over with excitement. We just could not wipe the smiles off our face that entire trip. It was just one discovery after another. This was essentially the paleontologist's equivalent of being a kid in a candy store. As the crew was taking a set of measurements, Milner heard his colleague, Dr. Marsh, yelling in the distance, much as he himself had been yelling just the month before. We couldn't believe it. He found another bone bed. This second older bone bed is even more extensive than the, the original one. And the, the quality of preservation of the bone is a little better. It's a bit more durable. Marsh discovered this distinct new fossil bed within the same 150 yards of the shoreline where the scientists had found the first set of fossils. The second bed hadn't been submerged underwater for quite as long as the first site, which is likely why the bones are in even better condition. We're going to learn a lot about tritylodonts uh, based on this find. Now, I'm just going to confess that I had never heard of tritylodonts before learning about this discovery. But fortunately, I got to speak with a tritylodont expert on the team. I would say it's an amazing discovery to have layers of sandstone just full of bones, just full of bones. You know, animals that in most places in the world are extremely rare. And here we have the remains of literally countless tritylodonts. Dr. Hans Seuss is senior research geologist and curator of paleontology at the National Museum of Natural History, which is part of the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., he studied the same tritylodont species that Milner and his team discovered at Glen Canyon for his doctoral thesis in 1983. I initially had worked on dinosaurs, and I'm still working on dinosaurs, but for my PhD, I could avail myself of this fantastic collection of tritylodontids, and tritylodontids had never really been very thoroughly studied. There were drips and drabs around the world. And given that they are extremely mammal-like, it seemed of great evolutionary interest 
to actually sort of really understand what their anatomy was like, what we could deduce about their mode of life, and so on. Among the tritylodont fossils that existed at that time, a small group had been discovered in northern Arizona in the 1950s, but the material wasn't in good condition. Dr. Seuss instead studied South African fossils for his thesis, and his research helped to build our understanding of these curious hybrid creatures. Since I was the only one who worked on it, I became the authority on it. (laughs) I was the best and the worst researcher in the subject. Seuss explains where the word tritylodont comes from. It basically refers to the fact that the upper cheek teeth have three rows of little cusps. When you feel in your mouth, your molars have basically sort of a central basin and then cusps around it. But these animals have three neatly aligned rows of cusps, which are sort of each half moon shape, and they bite against lower cheek teeth. And that's a very effective way of eating plant fodder. Although the tritylodont was technically a reptile, scientists believe it looks similar to a small rodent, and its features show strong similarities to animals like beavers and cats. They are now really considered among the closest relatives of mammals. They're not the actual precursors of mammals, but they were part of this group of animals that eventually gave rise to mammals. Seuss is hoping these new findings could help answer questions about how the animals grew. Because the team uncovered so many bones, scientists can study the animals in different life stages. He's also hoping the findings could give more clues into how tritylodonts walked, whether they sprawled out like lizards or had more upright postures like mammals. And with so many intact skulls and jaws, the findings could help us learn more about the transition from reptiles to mammals, a process in which small bones from the back of the reptile's skull eventually formed into the tiny bones in a mammal's inner ear and helped more modern animals evolve to do things like listen to podcasts. It's always a real thrill you know, that you suddenly get like a snapshot of the history of life in a particular place. But you might be wondering... Why were there so many fossils in this particular place? The team discovered these fossils in a part of the desert where two very different climates intermingled over time. Through the end of the Triassic and into the early Jurassic, that environment is changing over tens of millions of years. That's Dr. Adam Marsh, lead paleontologist and research coordinator at Petrified Forest National Park in Arizona. He was the member of the field crew at Glen Canyon, who was swinging a sledgehammer with Andrew Milner on the team's second trip last April, and who eventually discovered the second fossil bed. And so what we're seeing is a gradual drying and changing over from rivers, lakes, and streams into these kind of like Sahara-like massive windblown dune environments. Those don't tend to bury fossils as efficiently as rivers, lakes, and streams, and it could be that there's not as many animals around because it's just a tough place to live. This Sahara-like dune environment is preserved in the Navajo sandstone formation where fossils are rarely found. But just beneath this sandstone in the Glen Canyon region is an older geologic layer known as the Kayenta Formation. 
this formation existed during a subtropical period when a wet climate supported a biodiversity of life. The earliest tritylodonts were found after a mass extinction in the late Triassic period during this wetter time. If you were lucky enough to make it past the big die-off, life seemed pretty good. For a while, at least. Tritylodontids were co-occurring with things like Dilophosaurus, likely, in the earliest part of the Jurassic period. So this is the crested dinosaur that eats Newman in Jurassic Park. Dilophosaurus is running around. Smaller-bodied, meat-eating dinosaurs are running around. Um, some of the earliest long-necked dinosaurs uh, are in the Navajo sandstone and, and adjacent units. It's kind of this mixture of what we would consider a modern fauna in terms of, hey, it's got mammal-like things. It's got frogs. It's got turtles. It's got bird-like things. It's a cool mix of who survived that in-Triassic mass extinction and then sort of the formation of our modern ecosystems. But as all of these creatures adapted to living near rivers and lakes during these balmy subtropical conditions, an enormous sand sea began rolling in over millions of years. It could be that the fossils the team is finding now in depressions throughout the region are animals that died in lake beds and stream beds and became preserved over time by the giant incoming desert. There are places in the Navajo sandstone where um, I think this is what we're looking at in terms of this tritylodontid bone bed, where you get low spots where water collects, and that's where your life is going to collect as well, right? Because things are going to get drawn into that water. The rivers and lakes and streams are good places to, to bury fossils. Everyone on the team also expressed excitement that they may have found evidence that these animals were burrowers, something that scientists have long suspected but haven't yet been able to prove. According to Milner, the positioning of the skeletons within the sandstone suggests that some of the animals may have died in their burrows. Marsh is particularly intrigued by what they might learn from this behavior. There are pockets in the sandstone units where these things are coming out of. So is this a burrow? And are these things burrowing potentially as a way to accommodate a changing environment, right? And this is a story we see in different vertebrate groups in different environmental changes over deep time. He suggests the animals might even have adapted to become semi-aquatic, burrowing into riverbanks to escape the drier conditions. Evolutionarily, it's trying to understand behavior and how it may or may not give some kind of selective advantage in tough times like extinctions. Marsh shared that, like Milner, he was caught completely by surprise when he found that remarkable second fossil bed just yards from the first collection of remains. We weren't looking for fossils on purpose. We were there literally to just measure the section and get out because at that point we had put all the fossils onto the houseboat and it, it was gone. We all had like, you know, five to eight hour drives ahead of us. So, so of course, that's when you, you find new fossils. And <laughs> As a Park Service employee, Marsh takes a particular pride in this discovery. You know, we don't get a lot of tritylodontids from the Navajo sandstone. We don't get a lot of fossils, period, outside of dinosaur tracks in the Navajo sandstone. And then for them to occur in... Glen Canyon is just is great because that's part of why we set these places aside is to protect fossil resources like these.
The fact that the crew was able to find these fossils in just the right place at just the right time was a bit of a hunch, but no accident. Not only has Vincent Santusi been monitoring Glen Canyon's fossils for decades, he and his team chose this site as the pilot park in a nationwide program to monitor fossils. How do we manage? How do we protect? How do we interpret? How do we make decisions if we don't even know the resources that are out there? Santusi is a fervent advocate for inventorying and monitoring these resources, and he spearheaded a program in the late 1990s to formalize how the Park Service tracks and maintains them in the field. This starts with knowing where they are. Inventory is trying to understand the scope, the significance, the distribution, and the management issues associated with managing these fossils. Inventorying wasn't a new concept for Park Service paleontologists, who regularly conduct surveys in the field. But monitoring wasn't a regular practice back in the 1990s. Monitoring is trying to assess the stability and the condition of fossils that are left out there in the field. And so through monitoring, we assess both the natural processes and sometimes the human activities that may result in the loss of these resources over time, whether it's a landslide or whether it's a visitor that comes out and unfortunately illegally collects a specimen of dinosaur track because they think it's cool, are, are things that we're trying to monitor for. After publishing papers in 2003 and 2009 to research and define what a monitoring program should look like, Santusi and his team decided that Glen Canyon would be an ideal site to begin testing their new practices, to monitor the monitoring, so to speak. We decided that we wanted to go to Glen Canyon because Glen Canyon preserved a really interesting scenario where fossils were being subjected to this variety of impacts due to the changes in the water level of, of Lake Powell. Sometimes fossil sites would be beneath water, and sometimes they would be exposed during low water levels. The conditions of the lake are an integral part of the fossil monitoring. And so, as the water levels dropped near areas of the park where fossil tracks had been found before, Santusi and his team were able to make a calculated decision to send the scientists out in March to look at what the lake had revealed. The planning that paid off for us is that we were able to time it, albeit during a, a cold time of year, that we were able to plan to get out there where this site was accessible. And it wasn't accessible to any of us in our lifetime previously. Monitoring fossils for the entire park system, as he does, Santusi is able to give some perspective on Glen Canyon's significance. You know, we have 286 national parks that preserve fossils. We have this record collectively of fossils from national parks that span back to these stromatolites, these algal mats that are very primitive, high in the mountains of Glacier National Park, all the way through Ice Age caves and Grand Canyon that have fossils in them. Glen Canyon is right in the middle of that. It spans the entire Mesozoic, that time of the age of reptiles and dinosaurs. And so Paleontologically, this very, very big national park preserves a beautiful cross-section 
for Mesozoic paleontology in the Park Service. In fact, I, I kid the staff all the time. We need to redesignate Glen Canyon National Recreation Area to Glen Canyon Fossil Beds National Park because it is an incredible fossil locality. The new find also helped vindicate the long work he and many others put into carefully keeping tabs on this large remote park and its hidden potential. We put a lot of 16, 18 hour days in in our career because we love what we do. And, uh, you know, it's just hard to stop, particularly when we're onto something. So when we invested in saying, okay, we need to determine what is monitoring? Because nobody's done this before. Not, there's not a lot of scientific literature that can help guide us. We invested a lot of time, but it was all kind of a risk. It was a lot of work to try to do something right with a vision that someday maybe this will pay off. Well, w- when we discovered this site in Glen Canyon, we were paid off. We were paid off in ways that we could have never dreamt of. The full extent of that payoff will take a long time to determine. Right now, the team has a series of large sandstone blocks, most of them weighing about 50 pounds to nearly 300 pounds each, and they've only just begun to peer inside them. The scientists worked with a medical facility in Utah to obtain an initial set of CT scans. This helped to determine the quantity and placement of specimens contained within the blocks. A CT, or computed tomography scan, is a kind of x-ray that produces detailed internal images, like you might get at the doctor's. But the initial medical scans weren't clear enough to determine important information, such as the species of each fossil. The next step will be to get more sophisticated scans at a scientific laboratory. The team is partnering with Sandia National Laboratories in New Mexico to get a better understanding of just what it is they excavated. Here again is Andrew Milner. We need to get some good results with these CT scans so we can at least identify what kind of tritylodonts they are. Once we've got that in place, then we're looking to get a preliminary paper out describing what we have. That is only the beginning. We expect it's going to take years to prepare specimens and process the scans. With this technology, the team hopes to produce 3D models of their discoveries, including replicas of bones that dissolved over time, but left detailed impressions in the rock. The team is just beginning to prioritize the research questions that the specimens could help answer, from behavioral insights to new information about the environment the tritylodonts lived in. Dr. Hans Seuss suggests we might find corollaries to our own modern experience of climate change. Anything about living organisms that we can deduce from fossils is helpful because you have to remember 99.99999% of all living things that ever existed on Earth have already vanished. So we're just looking at a very tiny slice of all of the living things that have existed. So for instance, When we look at climate change, which certainly was involved here, we went from a warm climate to an extremely desert-like, extremely dry climate. So we can see how animals and plants responded to that. In fact, scientists are already using discoveries like this one to learn how life could adapt to climate change in the future. 
we already know from studies of the plants from this time interval that there's a real change in the vegetation to forms that have all kinds of specializations, like really thick cuticles you know, on the outside of a leaf to minimize water loss. So when we discuss it now, what will this, the coming climate changes look like in terms of what their impact of, on organisms is, we will actually then have data to develop predictive models. There's actually now an area already called conservation paleontology, which is concerned about current ecosystems. And we look at the fossil record to find out what does happen if you crank up the temperature. Though the full significance of the discovery will take time to understand, and the sites of the fossil beds have been back underwater for months, Andrew Milner is already thinking about his next trip to the place he now calls Tritylodont Cove. We can't wait to get back. Oh yeah, ever since we left in April, I can't wait to get back. (laughs) As we were pulling away on the last day with the smiles on our faces, heading north up the lake from Tritylodont Cove, we could see the exact same kinds of beds going for miles and extending well up above the high watermark on Lake Powell. There's so much rock to explore. We're going to find more track sites, but Adam, Marsh, and I are convinced we're going to find more bone sites too. I spoke with all four of these scientists last month, just days after they presented their initial findings at a major conference. Vincent Santusi also had his mind on the future in a different way. Just coming back from the paleontology meetings, I can't tell you how many students of paleontologists said, hey, do you need help? You think there's any master's projects in here that we can get involved in? And so uh, the excitement of being able to mentor another young generation to build on some of these principles and practices that we've pioneered, this is going to pay off for us in, in a lot of ways beyond just the understanding of this world of the early Jurassic desert. As we were winding down our conversation, Dr. Marsh took a moment to emphasize the importance of preserving sites like Glen Canyon. As a federal paleontologist, I always come back to the fact that Glen Canyon wasn't necessarily set aside for fossils like Petrified Forest was. But at least 60% of all the NPS sites in the country have fossils. These are non-renewable paleontological resources that are important and they're protected for a reason. And place like Glen Canyon, we're just scratching the surface in terms of understanding the fossil resources at Glen Canyon. He hinted at some of the wonder that inspires people to return again and again to parks like this one. And even as someone who isn't a scientist, I could really relate to what he had to say. This just shows us that no matter how many people go up and down a place like Glen Canyon, there's always something more to find in these protected places. And that's, I think that's really special. There's always new things to learn from our Park Service units. The Secret Lives of Parks is a production of the National Parks Conservation Association. Episode 25, The Skeleton Crew, was produced by me, Jennifer Eric with help from Todd Christopher, Bev Stanton, and Linda Couton. I want to give a special shout-out to Todd this episode for coming up with the title before any of the story was even written, because he's just that good with puns. Original theme music by Chad Fisher. Learn about the 286 sites across the national park system that have known fossils at nps.gov slash subjects slash fossils. 
Learn more about this podcast and listen to the rest of our stories at thesecretlivesofparks.org. For more than a century, the National Parks Conservation Association has been protecting and enhancing America's national parks for present and future generations. With more than 1.6 million members and supporters, NPCA is the nation's only independent, nonpartisan advocacy organization dedicated to protecting national parks. And we're proud of it too. You can join the fight to preserve our national parks and over a billion years worth of history contained in them. Learn more and join us at npca.org. As we always say, so much rock, so little time. (laughs) I'm Abby Robertson, and I am Senior Manager of Strategic Partnerships and Marketing with National Parks Conservation Association. The outdoors are places for inspiration for so many people. And for our latest project with our partners at Yellowstone Bourbon, we took musicians into New River Gorge National Park, Black Canyon of the Gunnison National Park, and Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and recorded them in these beautiful places, playing songs that were inspired by their experiences. This song relates to me because there's a little bit of me in that character. Some of these people I had already met by going to their shows, so I think that resonated with them as authentic. But yeah, I mean, everybody was really excited. Who doesn't want to go out to a national park for a day and like do the thing that you know you love the most? The thing I hope for when people listen to this song, when they listen to Westward Bound, is that they heed that voice in them that's calling them out on an adventure. Not only does the videos themselves showcase this beauty of the parks, but we also get to see the source of inspiration right alongside the actual song that what the artist created. In my song, Drink the River, you see inspiration drawn from the national parks through references to not just the river, but to nature in general and the, and the power of nature. These are some of my favorite artists and having the opportunity to bring them into places that are their favorites and see these parks through their eyes was a really unique experience and I think comes through in the series. If you're interested in learning more about NPCA's partnership with Yellowstone Bourbon and viewing the videos, you can visit www.npca.org slash park sessions. And they are some of my favorite artists. It was like very, very insane. Buy me a boat, take it out to see.